You know, it's possible to teach the Bible or to preach the Bible, especially a book like Revelation, in kind of a clinical way. And what I mean by that is, particularly a book like Revelation, it would be so very easy to focus so much on some of the specifics that you miss the grand picture. I mean, it'd be so easy to get wrapped up in all the details of the four living creatures and the elders, the four horses and the riders. It'd be so easy to get all wrapped up in that and try and figure out every little detail and every little nuance. And we certainly could do that, but the end result would be that your heads would be filled with knowledge, but your heart probably wouldn't be comforted and encouraged very much. In Revelation chapter 7, I've spent three weeks in it now, and perhaps we'll spend another week in it. But I have come to treasure Revelation chapter 7. It is a chapter that reveals the heart of God for his people. It is a chapter that gives us a glimpse, or really more than a glimpse. It gives us a grand view of what awaits us in heaven. So therefore, to study it in kind of a clinical way, focusing on all the details, and the details are important, don't, don't get me wrong, they are important. But really my goal, particularly this morning is, is to show you the heart of our great God and to help us all understand exactly what he has done for us and is doing for us. I bandied about several titles for my sermon in my head. I, I don't normally tell them. You don't care, and I don't care much. I really only write a title because Joey says, what's your title? So you can put it on YouTube. But I, I bandied about one of two different titles. The first one was, Christian, your future is bright, or simply promises kept. Both are kind of the themes of what we're going to look at this morning. Christian, your future is bright, and beloved, this is promises kept. Well, when the sixth seal was opened in Revelation chapter 6, we saw that the predicted day of the Lord or the day of judgment came, and this world meets a violent and destructive end, and the unbelievers on the day of the Lord they cried out for the mountains and for the rocks to fall on them in a desperate and vain attempt to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And recorded at the end of chapter 6 will be, if not the final words that we hear from sinful mankind, 
be certainly very close to the final words that we hear from sinful mankind. There's three words phrased in the form of a question, who can stand? In light of God's wrath being unleashed, they recognize the foolishness of their sin. They recognize the foolishness of their rebellion, all of their mocking, all of their shaking of their fist towards the sky has done nothing for them. And as the realization of their doom dawns upon them, they utter those words, who can stand? And so for the last three weeks, we have been trying to examine the answer to that question. And we've come up with uh, scriptural answers to the question, who can stand? Well, those who will stand on the day of judgment are those who will survive the great day of God's wrath. These are the people who have been sealed by God. Uh, a short way of saying what it means to be sealed by God is to be protected by God. God's sealing, beloved, is your guarantee of his safety and protection for your soul. And who can stand? Well, all of the redeemed. First, we saw the 144,000. John said those will stand. But we understand that the 144,000 are simply symbolic of the great multitude that John sees, a multitude so vast that he says that it is innumerable. This multitude stretches as far as the eye can see. John can't see the end of it. And we read this morning that this vast innumerable multitude is made up of people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Now, without going into the details, what each one of them mean, suffice it to say that God saves indiscriminately, meaning God does not discriminate against any. He saves all from all different kinds of groups of people, all different ethnic groups. God saves indiscriminately. But what does this vast number represent? And we looked at this last week. This vast number represents victory. They represent the triumph of the Lamb. They represent the full and final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over the grave, over death, over sin, over hell, over all of our Lord's enemies. And yes, thankfully, wonderfully, over Satan, the adversary of our souls. This is victory that's represented here. But there's something else that is taking place or has taken place. And it's why we see this vast multitude of people. And it's simply this. What we are being shown is all of God's promises being fulfilled. Have you thought about that? Here's what we see as we witness this vast multitude that stretches as far as the eye could see Yes, they represent victory, but they also represent the fulfillment of God's promises. 
You know, we live in a world of broken promises, don't we? The politician, it doesn't matter what level they are on, they will be more than happy to make you a promise in order to get your vote. But as soon as they are sworn in and have their little bit of power, what do they do? Um, they proceed to either forget their promise or intentionally break their promise. Parents make promises to their children, and sometimes those promises are broken. Children sometimes make promises to their parents, and sometimes they break their promise. Husbands and wives make promises to one another, and sadly and tragically, those promises are broken. And what does broken promises lead to? Well, at the very minimum, it leads to a sense of frustration sense of disappointment that may even go further and lead to discouragement and depression. Why? Because promises were made and promises were broken. But beloved, when you read of God's promises in his word, you can take it to the bank. He will not break that promise. There's no power in hell. There's no power on earth that can keep God from breaking his promise. God will keep, God will fulfill every promise made to his children. And there's multiple ways that we could look at the, the rest of Revelation chapter 7. And one would be we could, we could examine the response of God's people to the fulfillment of his promise. That's probably what we'll do in a week or so. But this morning, I want to look at it from the standpoint of when we read of this vast multitude and we read about God's actions, I want you to think in terms of this is God keeping his promises. Say, why are you belaboring the point? Because I need to know that God keeps his promises. Amen? I needed comfort this week over a particular situation. And I said to the Lord, I said, I need comfort. And you know what he provided? Comfort. Why did he do that? Because I'm such a swell guy? And he likes to do me favors? No, because he had promised me that he would comfort me. So that's what I want you to see here. And I'm going to give you multiple examples. In fact, I'm probably going to bore you to tears and it may wear out your fingers turning to different passages. But let me show you all the promises or some of the promises that are being kept here. Let's start with verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked. And by the way, uh, you may want to go ahead and stick your finger in the Gospel of John because we will go there in just a couple of minutes. But anyway, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, we examined this last week, but remember, this was the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, that from Abraham would come a great nation, and from Abraham, or in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we examined that last week uh, in some detail. So that's, again, that's what we're seeing, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise here in verse 9. But there's also another promise here that has been kept. 
Say, so what's the promise? Well, in our text, we need to take uh, notice of uh, their wardrobe. They're making a fashion statement, if you will. So what do you mean? What are they all wearing? You know, if if we would walk into church someday, I think John and I have a similar, very similar suits, and it, it, it happens every once in a while that he wears it and I wear it, and he looks a lot better than I do, but that's beside the point. But But if we all walked into church one day wearing the same thing, now the men wouldn't care. They say, dude, good. Yeah. You know, you, you come to the men, you come to the men's breakfast and you know, we, we got, we got more flannel than a, whatever. We got a flock of flannel down there. You know, nobody cared. But the, the, the ladies, they, they would be horrified. Can't, I can't believe that she's wearing what I'm wearing. But you know what? There's coming a day when, you know what? Now I'm not big on robes. That, that probably doesn't surprise anybody, but I'm not big on robes. But there's one robe I can't wait to wear. Say, what's the robe? That white robe that Jesus is going to give to us. And what is this vast multitude wearing? They're wearing white robes. Say, well, what's that got to do with the promise? Well, perhaps you remember that Jesus made a promise to the believers in the church at Sardis. And he said that those who didn't soil or those who lived a holy lifestyle, they would walk with him in white. And Jesus went on to promise that all those who conquered would be clothed in white garments. So what do we see this great multitude wearing? We see them wearing white robes, which means what? It means that Jesus has kept the promise that he made. And again, what does a white robe symbolize? It symbolizes holiness. But there's another promise that Jesus made to the same church at Sardis. In verse 5 of chapter 3, Jesus promised, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. We just saw that. And then he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Jesus promised to the one who conquers uh, that they will be clothed in white. And he also promised, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So we just simply ask, did Jesus keep this promise? And the answer is yes. Say, how do we know that Jesus kept this promise? Because what do we see here? They are part of this great multitude that John describes. Okay. So they, Jesus made a promise to them. And Jesus kept the promise, and we see the evidence here. Well, how about the church at Philadelphia? Did Jesus make any promises to the church of Philadelphia? Yes, he did. In verse 10 of chapter 3, we read, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So what was the promise? The promise was to keep them from the uh, hour of trial. Now, if you remember back that when we studied the church of Philadelphia, we learned that what Jesus meant was that he would keep them safe both in and through the tribulation. Okay? And that's the promise that he makes to all of his people. In other words, he would empower them so that they would stand then in verse 12, Jesus made them another promise. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. So let's start with a promise that Jesus would make, uh, that Jesus would make them pillars in the temple of his God. 
Did he keep that promise? He did. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his where? Temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So what does the therefore refer to? Well, it refers to the great multitude of all those who have been sealed by God and now are standing before the throne of God. So again, promise made, promise kept. Then there's another promise in verse 12. Jesus promised to write on him, that is, uh, those who conquer the name of my God. Now, we just have to think back here a couple weeks ago to what the sealing of God was. And we learned that to be sealed by God was to be given the Father's name. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with them 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So what do we see? Promise made, promise kept. So I will ask you at this juncture, if Jesus makes a promise, will Jesus keep his promise? He will. Now you may not need this right now, but I guarantee you, you're going to need that assurance someday. It's, 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 it's absolutely wonderful to me that we can go to the book of Revelation, which so many people, including Christians, see nothing in it but doom and gloom. And we find this wonderful assurance and have all these evidences of Jesus making promises to his people and keeping those promises. Well, let's go to the Gospel of John. There's a couple of things I want to show you in the Gospel of John because they relate directly to this great multitude as well. In chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So let's just ask, by the way, here's a wonderful way to study the Scriptures. Just start asking questions, right? So in this case, we'll ask this question. Did every one of, of this vast multitude that John sees, did every one of them come to Christ? Yeah, the obvious answer is yes, of course they did. Okay. If they hadn't come to Christ, they wouldn't be there, correct? Okay. And what was the promise that Jesus made to all who would come to him? The promise was that, they would, that he would never cast them out. In other words, they would be eternally secure. So, well, how do we know that that's true? John saw a what? A vast multitude of the sealed. All those who came to him, he sealed them. And all those who came to him, he didn't cast a one of them out. Promise made, promise kept. How about in John chapter 10? John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So there's a couple promises here. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Now that's a reference to his sheep that he's just been talking about. And what was the promise that Jesus made to his sheep? He promised that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Again, I, 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 did Jesus keep his promise? Yes. So how do we know? Look at the vast multitude. Look at the vast multitude. Those who are numbered among this vast multitude proves 
that they've stood, that they've survived, that they have not perished, which means that no one was able to snatch them out of his hand. And by the way, can I say this? I don't think I need to say it, but I, 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 I want to say it, I guess. You don't need to help God keep his promises. You don't need to try and bargain with God or manipulate God in some way or fashion or form in order to keep his promises. Listen, he wants to keep his promise more than you want him to keep his promise. And he will keep his, say, what does he want from me? Trust, faith, obedience, and let him do the rest. Now, I want you to notice something at the end of verse 9 of Revelation 7, if you'll flip back there, because there's an important detail that I want to bring out this morning. At the end of verse 9, where we, we read that they were all dressed in white robes and that they all had palm branches in their hands. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that the palm branch in Scripture is a sign of victory. It's a sign of victory. So this relates back to what I talked about last week, that this vast multitude is a symbol of what? It's a symbol of victory. So now we see that they've got these palm branches in their hands. Say, so what does this have to do with anything? Well, let me show you where it comes from. In Leviticus 23, God is giving instructions to his people, to the children of Israel, concerning the the construction of booths, if you will, and in particular here, uh, the Feast of Booths. And let me read you from verse 40 of Leviticus 23. And, and God says, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. So now, keep this in mind. The palm branch is a sign of victory, and during this time they're supposed to do what? Rejoice. Rejoice over what? God's victory. Okay? Where does the joy of a Christian life come from? Well, certainly part of it is the assurance of our victory. Okay. Now, the next question is, why did God institute the Feast of Booths? That's a good question. And God answers that question in verses 42 and 43. Now listen closely. God said to the people, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That's your, now here's the reason why. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Feast of Booths was simply a celebration of God's victory on behalf of his people. It was a celebration of God's deliverance of his people from under the hand of Pharaoh and out of the bondage of Egypt. So it's a celebration of God's victory. And the people were to spend seven days rejoicing before God. So we might, we might need to ask this question. Is there somewhere else significant in Scripture in which palm branches are mentioned, and in particular in relation to Jesus Christ? Yes. Go back to the Gospel of John if you want to, or I'll read it to you. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 13. 
So we read this. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, I like to learn new things, and I learned something new this week. I never knew what the word Hosanna meant. You know what it means? It means save, we pray. Save, we pray. So, as Jesus is making his triumphal entry, what are the people crying out who are holding the palm branches? Save, we pray. Now, this is absolutely marvelous. I hope you get as cranked up about it as I am. In John 12, the people cried out, Hosanna. Again, in essence, we could say, Jesus, save us. Now look at verse 10 of Revelation 7. Revelation 7, verse 10. Now, this is the vast multitude this is the 144,000. This is all those who have been sealed by God. Verse 10, and crying out, by the way, the word crying here and cried in John 12 is the exact same word. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You say, what's the big deal? Jesus answered their prayer. Salvation belongs to our God. Do you see how this, do you see how the tapestry of scripture is all woven together? It's not just a bunch of disconnected stories and disconnected doctrines. It's one grand story. And here we have an evidence of that. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The reason they cry out is because of promises kept. Did God promise to redeem a people? Yes. The people understood that. They said, Hosanna, save, we pray. And here in Revelation chapter 7, we see the abundant fulfillment of this promise to save. You know, it's easy for us as Christians to look around and think, we are so grossly outnumbered, it's not even funny. And we feel like Elijah at times, no one else is serving you, God, I'm the only one. But then, instead of looking around... We do what? We look up. And we see this vast multitude. I don't know how many of you are familiar with J. Vernon McGee, but he was a, um, I guess you would call him an expositor from way back when. I, I used to listen to him every day faithfully. He had a, a South Texas draw that he preached with. And I'll never forget him saying, he was he was answering a question about Will there be more saved or unsaved people at the end of history? And I wish I could do his accent, but I can't. But he said, I don't think God's going to be on the losing side. 
Now, I don't have scripture for that, but I would like to think this vast multitude gives us some credence that going to be lots and lots and lots of people saved. And that encourages us. So they say, they cried out on Palm Sunday, save us. And now in heaven before the throne, they acknowledge that Jesus has saved them. Salvation belongs to our God. I got one more promise for you. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Revelation 7. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, admittedly, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is in the future. But these are precious verses to God's children. And by the way, this is something that has been promised throughout Scripture. For instance, Isaiah wrote of this. Isaiah 49, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has, he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Sounds pretty familiar what we just read in Revelation chapter 7, doesn't it? Then Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, there's another promise made by God. He, referring to God, will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So what does God promise to do for his children? Well, first of all, he's promised to provide for them. And we see this repeatedly in Scripture, so this is, this is nothing new. Maybe it's just a refresher for us, but he's, provided to prov he's promised to provide for us. Second, he's promised to protect his children. When we read these words of Isaiah where he said, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. We need to understand this in terms of the trials and the tribulations on earth. What he is saying is, is that these things will be no more. We'll never have to worry about these things again. If you would go back and read from Revelation, uh, excuse me, from Hebrews chapter 11, and you read about all the trials and tribulations, all the persecutions, all the sufferings of those uh, uh, outlined in Hebrews chapter 11, and then we understand that when we get to heaven, guess what? None of that stuff will ever happen there. It will all be over, all be finished. We will no longer have to endure any form of suffering. But what does it mean when John says, that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Well, for, for, first of all, for starters, I mean, just think about this. If you're a parent, you, you immediately resonate with this. This speaks of a parent's tender care for their children, does it not? You have a little uh, Tommy, and he, he falls down and skins his knee, and he comes running to you, and he's crying. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to comfort them, right? And you wipe their tears away, and wipe their other stuff away that kind of grosses you out at times, but you do it because you, you love them. Yeah. It speaks of tender care. So uh, how do you see God? <laughs> isn't, this a, isn't this a wonderful picture of the character of God, of the tender care of God? That God is going to wipe away our tears someday? 
By the way, these words are spoken to those who have come out of the great tribulation. Say, well, what does that mean? Well, what it, what it refers to is all of those, and we are numbered amongst them, who lived during the time, during the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Now, I, I know this is hard for us to understand, particularly because we have heard just the opposite, most of us, for much of our life in the church, but we are right now in the midst of the great tribulation. Now, just because we don't experience it doesn't mean that people in other parts of the world aren't experiencing it because we know that they are. And I would dare say that in the coming days, the coming years, we will begin to experience those things more frequently and with more ferocity right here in the United States of America. So it's to all of those who have come out of the great tribulation. It's a time of suffering for the people of God. It's a time of persecution for the people of God. It's a time during which countless numbers of Christ's followers are killed simply because they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a time when believers lose jobs, lose friendships. It's a time when believers are hated and despised for only one reason. I said, I said a few weeks ago, they're hated and despised not because they're bad people, not because they've done bad things. They're hated and despised simply because they follow Christ. But one day, our sufferings, our tribulations, our trials, and I pray this day is not too far in the future, it will all be over. And our Father will express His tender love and concern for His children by wiping away the tears from our eyes and saying that there will never again be tears of sorrow shed. The wiping away of our tears is the same as saying that the days of sorrow and suffering are over. Isn't that a wonderful picture of our Heavenly Father? Just like loving parents, he, he wants to take away our pain. He wants to take away our sorrow. So he wipes away our tears and says everything is going to be all right. And we believe him because of all the promises made and all the promises kept. And just in case we missed the point here in Revelation chapter 7, God repeats the same promise in Revelation 21. I'll read it to you. Verses 1 through 4, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So in verse 4, we see the same thing. God will wipe away every tear, and then he provides a list of those things that cause our tears. For instance, there will be no more death. Death brings tears, death brings sadness, death brings grief. But there will be no more mourning over death. And also believe this is reference that we will no longer mourn over our sin. Say, why? Because we will finally be what? Glorified in our earthly flesh is history. No more mourning over death. No more mourning over sin. No more mourning over broken relationships. No more mourning at all. 
be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. I feel for people who are in chronic pain. Nothing can be done for them. I feel for people with chronic diseases that they just have to learn to live with. I feel for those who have diseases and watch their bodies slowly waste away. Or they watch in horror as their loved ones lose their memories and then lose control of their bodily functions and revert to being an infant. But one day all of that will be over. Beloved, one day we'll be pain-free. People who depend upon drugs to keep them alive. They won't have to take another pill. And why will all this be true? Because the former things, the things that cause our pain and suffering, have all been put out the pasture, amen? They've all been exterminated. They've been done away with for the people of God. Now, do you see why there is incredible praise taking place in heaven? If I could ask you to do one thing this week, it'd be simply to go home, read chapter seven multiple times, pick out one of the phrases such as salvation belongs to our God and meditate on it. Dwell on it. Think it through. And see how those in heaven are responding to God's salvation. Christian, the future is bright. Let's start acting like it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that, Lord, you know, many times we come to the book of Revelation and we're looking for something sensational. I don't need sensational in my life. I need comfort. I need encouragement. I need to know 